Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. We frame this podcast around living your greatest life in a body that you love. And we're here to empower you with the knowledge and skill set to really develop this body that you can live out the next 100 years and the next 150 years and truly have a passionate relationship with your body and with your life. And today's guest is nothing short of a high achiever. Zach Bitter consistently runs 100-mile ultramarathons. That blows my mind to think about. Like most people don't even want to get in the car and drive for 100 marathons, yet Zach straps on his ultra shoes and heads out the door and go, hey, I'm going to run 100 miles today. In fact, he's now preparing to run something exponentially greater than 100 miles. Uh, he says it's about 180 miles. It will take him about 20 hours straight how does a human being get his head around that is my greatest question for Zach today. The cognitive battles that must go on around mile, you know, pick it, 70, 80, 90, every one of those miles to look at it and go, yes, I still have a tremendous amount more to go. It's certainly my greatest area of fascination. What separates the people who don't from the people who do? And I won't say can't because it's not can't. You absolutely can, but you don't. Why don't we do the things that we want to do, we need to do, we should do, yet we don't? And that's a very interesting conversation we have with Zach today. We dive into understanding the mechanics of how he eats. We dive into understanding the mechanics of how he prepares for a race like this, how he trains on a day-to-day basis, how he maintains a dynamic relationship with his wife, who's also an ultra-marathoner. Absolutely fascinating conversation with one of the best athletes on the planet right now. I mean, if you can consistently run 100 miles, if you're the American world record holder for the 100-mile marathon, you are beyond the 1%, right? You are an ultra achiever, not just a high achiever. And this is where we all want to get to ultimately. Every one of us listening to this podcast has some high aspiration to live your greatest life. Like, what does that mean for you? And looking at people like Zach Bitter and all the other guests we have on here are leaving clues as to how we're really, really, really going to do this, uh, giving us those little tidbits of information that for many of us, bang, sets off the light bulb, right? We say, hey, that's it. That's what I'm doing wrong. That's what I'm missing. This is what I'm going to go after. And I really try to dig into Zach's psyche and get a little bit more information about, you know, maybe that one little golden nugget that sets you or me over the top to really allow us to thrive in every aspect of life, right? I don't want to thrive in just my body. I don't want to thrive in just my finances or just my relationships really and truly want to thrive in every aspect. Is that possible? You know, personally, I've been exploring that a lot lately is, you know, how do you achieve a goal, put it on autopilot so that you know it's going to be maintained and never deteriorate, and then move on to the next one. And that's kind of where life starts to flourish is you have to put certain things onto autopilot because you can't focus on everything at once, right? So we need to create amazing habits around relationships, around finances, around our body, around our nutrition. Put those things on autopilot and then move on to the next goal. And that's really where I dig into with Zach is what are those daily habits, right? What are those daily training habits, those nutrition habits that are really the habits of an ultra high achiever? Super, super interesting conversation with Zach. Like one of the most fascinating guys I've ever met and just watching him sit there and go into his 
uh, emotional states as he speaks is so interesting, right? You're watching his eyes move and watching the dynamic of his body language as he just explores the psyche of taking himself back to the 90th mile of a 100-mile marathon where his body wants to break, his mind wants to quit, but he keeps persisting and then subjecting himself to it again and again and again. Guys, I hope you are inspired by this man as much as I am. I hope you love this podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. One of my favorite ways to perform, one of my favorite ways to recover is with my Four Sigmatic mushrooms. You know, guys know that lion's mane has been well documented as being one of the greatest cognitive enhancers as far as neurogenesis, growing new nerve cells. Uh, I take it on a day-to-day basis, especially when I'm trying to learn, especially when I'm learning a new skill or learning a new task helping my brain grow these new nerve pathways. Lion's mane is imperative to my day-to-day routine. And if you guys want to calm down, if you want to slow down, again, I go always head back to these mushroom concoctions. You know, a reishi and chaga tea is just such a beautiful way to finish your day. You add cordyceps to that. It's been shown to improve your endurance, improve the way your body functions. These have so many adaptogenic properties, which is just... If your body needs to be brought up, it brings it up. If it needs to be brought down, it brings it down. It's kind of this hyper-responsive quality of mushrooms. I'm so fascinated with mushrooms and I'm so blessed to have Four Sigmatic as a sponsor of the podcast. They support this podcast. We can go out and get you guys the best guests in the world like Zach Bitter. And we want to support them back. So if you guys want to head to foursigmatic.com, you can use the discount code MUSCLE for 15% off your next order and every order for... As long as these guys continue to support us, we're going to support them because I love their products and I love Four Sigmatic's mission. They've got a whole bunch of other awesome stuff that you guys should check out too. So they have instant coffees, which I really, really like. They have uh, Super Greens products now, which are super interesting, taste really, really great, and a whole bunch of other stuff that you guys should absolutely check out. Enjoy the podcast with Zach Bitter. You tell me, man, is this something you think you're born with or something you think you've developed over time? Or how did you get that mindset of being able to run 100 miles uh, (laughs) straight out (laughs) without stopping, you know? Yeah, you know, there's probably some kind of goofy personality things at the bedrock there. But in terms of just like getting into the sport of extreme endurance, that was more or less kind of a gradual process, I would say. Uh, The story I usually tell folks when they're curious about kind of my trajectory into the sport is I had a meeting between my sophomore year in college with my soon-to-be uh, cross-country and track coach at the University of Wisconsin Stevens Point, and he was just kind of breaking down the basic kind of build-ups that the variety of different kids would be doing during the progression of their collegiate careers. And he would say, like, you know, most are incoming freshmen; they're running fifty to sixty miles a week, and by the time they're juniors and seniors, you know, they might be logging some ninety to hundred mile weeks. I remember when you told me that the first thing I thought was there will never be a week in which I run 90 plus miles. (laughs) And I just get such a kick out of that now because, you know, I'll do that in a day now. So when people will come to me and say, oh man, I I don't know how you do this extreme endurance stuff. I could never do that. My thought is like, oh, you can, you just don't know yet. And (laughs) ultimately I think it's something you gotta, you gotta want to do. So there's no sense in kind of going after that if it's not an interest of yours. But uh, I think it's an interesting story because it kind of highlights 
what you think you can do versus what you really can do. And, uh, you know, for me, that was probably a good mindset at the time because it kept me from getting crazy and trying to do something like that before I was really ready for it. It set me up to kind of do what I would call kind of micro stressing my mental and physical approach. So instead of, you know, going from a kid who would run maybe 30 miles a week in high school to a sophomore college trying to run like, you know, 90 to 100 miles a week, that may not have been a sustainable approach. So the gradual increase probably is partly why I'm able to kind of continue to do this without having a whole lot of hiccups along the way. For sure, man. I was a pro bodybuilder for 10 years and you don't start out going, oh, I want to look like that, right? You just yeah. start out going, I want to put on 10 pounds of muscle, right? Like I tell everybody, when I started bodybuilding, I thought professional bodybuilders were disgusting. I was like, I'm never going to do that. Like never, it's funny. <laughs> and then, you know, you put on that 10 or 20 pounds of muscle and you get your goal and you're like, oh, I just want the next 10 pounds. And that's how it progresses, right? It's just a desensitization toward, you know, eventually you're like, man, I want to see how far I can really take this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I've always been really fascinated with like the bodybuilding and the powerlifting communities. I think that probably surprises a lot of people just because like it's the polar opposite of what I'm doing for the most part. But when you really get down to the the philosophy or the mental side of that, I mean, it's a patient man's game in both cases. Like I could go an entire year and have a really good training and have none of it result in a race that I'm proud of. But that doesn't mean that that building that I did during that training phase that year isn't going to pay dividends down the road in the future year. And I think if you stay consistent, stay positive and, you know, keep chipping away like that, you're going to see that return as long as you're patient. And, you know, when you're looking at a sport like bodybuilding or powerlifting, where you want to, over the course of your career, maybe like double the amount of weight you can lift, you know, that's a patient man's game as well. Sure. But so Zach, one of the parts of, of the messaging within my podcast now is, you know, kind of hidden in what you just said there. And it's this reality that even if you don't have a good season this season, even if you don't have a good season next season, what you've created within your character is unstoppable persistence, right? Like you could take on any goal now, Zach, and you would dominate it. You would crush any business, any endeavor you take on in your life because you've created these these habits. You've created this character of I set a goal and I create action steps and I persist and I follow through and I achieve. And that's the victory, man. And that's kind of what, you know, yes, it's important to have great races. And yes, it's important to place really well because that makes us feel good in the moment. And that makes us, you know, strive toward bigger things. But the big picture in life, man, is any goal you set for yourself now, it's a foregone conclusion. And it's just a matter of time and patience and persistence, just the same things you're applying to racing. And that's kind of the messaging here that I'm trying to convey to people, right? This idea of I'm on my second mountain now. The first mountain was professional bodybuilding. I achieved everything I've ever wanted to achieve for the most part. And now you're moving on to this next phase of life where you're like, okay, now I take all those characteristics that I've developed and apply them to something that's next in life. And that's where I want to go with you, man, is like, how do you start to, you know, one, actually taking a step back, I want to talk to you about what's going through your head. You know, I'm sure you've been asked this question a zillion times, but I've never heard you answer it. And I want to talk like, when you start getting into, you know, and this is just obviously a personal thing, when you start getting into the, the deep hours, right? You start getting into six hours and eight hours and 10 hours of running 100 miles. What are the cycles of thoughts that you're going through, man? Is there times that it's meditative? Is there times that it's challenging? I'd love to have you just walk us through kind of the mind games that you're playing with yourself. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think like maybe where the sport of ultra marathon running is a little unique with that is it's a niche enough sport where we include such a variety of different kind of competitive environments. Like you can go to a race 
where you're at 10,000 feet that's going to climb up to like 13,000 feet and run 50 Ks through technical mountain trails. Or you can hop on a 400 meter track and see how far you can run in six days. But those are all considered ultra marathons. So like every one of those and everything in between requires a, a decent amount of specificity in order to really maximize your performance in that both physically and mentally. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to kind of experience a fairly wide variety of those. And I think there is some differences there. So like my mindset, if I'm going to do say like a 12 hour event where I see if I can run 12 hours on a short track or a loop course is quite a bit different than say, if I'm going to try to run a hundred mile or out in the trails. And part of that is just both the logistics of it, as well as kind of the way I look at it mentally. Like if I'm on a fucking torture running around a track for 12 hours, (laughs) yeah, I want to torture myself today. It's really funny. Like, I mean, that's the most uh, logical first thing to think of. And I think that's where most people go right away. And, And I totally appreciate that. But like the way I look at it is for one, like the amount of variables you can control in an environment like that is insane. Like think about 400 meter loops. If you decide you want something, you get it within a couple minutes. And if you screw it up, you just got to wait a couple more minutes to fix it. <laughs> Whereas right. like if I'm out on a mountain course and I screw something up in an aid station, I might have to wait an hour, hour and a half to get to the next one to try to remedy the situation. So logistically, that's a huge relief off your mind. You just know like, okay, I don't have to be juggling all these logistical things in my head. And, you know, the monotony is the thing you have to get past. And that gets, I think, a little closer to the question you were asking, like, well, what are you thinking about and what are you doing? And really like what I try to coach other folks and try to practice myself is like this acute focus without losing sight of the ultimate goal, but not over fixating on the ultimate goal. And the reason I describe it like that is because it's really difficult to wrap your head around running a hundred miles. So if I would start a race that's a hundred miles long on a track and start thinking about the finish when I'm 45 minutes into it, I'm going to wreck myself mentally I'm going to be burnt out mentally before I even come close to the end of it. So you have to kind of break it down into like bite-sized pieces that you can wrap your head around and try to focus on that one spot and really accomplish those small tasks one at a time. So where it gets a little tricky is like you're usually going in with some sort of a pacing strategy that you don't want to go too slow or too fast. So there's kind of a sweet spot in there. So you need to be like in the moment enough not to be overthinking the end of the race, but you have to have a little bit of the end of the race in the back of your mind just so you're not like, you know, running 30 seconds per mile too fast or 30 seconds per mile too slow. So what I usually like to do is I try to break the race into, you know, like categories of like, okay, first I'm just like in the early stages, it's a lot easier. You're fresh mentally, you're fresh physically. So to churn out two hours goes by like, like really fast. You know, the last two hours might feel like half the race. So I kind of adapt as I go along, like in the early stages, I might just be thinking about simple things like, well, you know, this is, it's really great to be at the end of this training block. I did a lot of quality work. I'm at the fitness I want to be. Now I get a chance to kind of show or prove that what I did in training was uh, good enough to produce a result I'm looking for. I usually use some of those early stages to try to be kind of like grateful for like just the ability to be out there. You know, the the relative uh, privilege I have to be able to do a sport like this as like, you know, part of my career and, you know, try to keep things really, really positive. And then as it gets a little further, you know, especially when I'm on some of these more monotonous trains, I start to try to put myself in a different place mentally than where I am physically. So then you start kind of getting into that meditative thing where I'll start to think like, okay, I'm going to run these next five miles, but I'm going to pretend I'm on this like five mile route that I have back at home where I know like where I'm at exactly every step of the way because I've done it so many times. 
And I just picture myself being there as opposed to like on the track. And that can help kind of have you hyper-focus on one thing as opposed to kind of trying to think about the end of it when you're not anywhere near it yet. And you ever get any fear around like getting lost on the tracks? Like they're probably pretty well marked, but has there ever been a time where like your brain started to kind of unconsciously panic? Like, oh shit. Yeah. Well, you know, I've done that. <laughs> I've, yeah. had, I've had, it's usually if you do enough ultra marathons when you're on the trails or even the roads for that matter, I mean, it's only a matter of time before you make a mistake. And it's yeah. one of those things too, where like as an RD, I don't race direct anything, but I know enough RDs where it would have to be the most terrifying thing to go about the beginning of the race. Like they go through like a huge process of trying to mark these things as well as they can. So people stay on track, but really ultimately all it takes is one like maybe disgruntled person who's out there and doesn't want to see this event go through these trails to turn a sign or pull a ribbon off and kind of have a, a situation happen. And are you being like low hypoglycemic or something and you're not paying attention, you're going to go yeah. run off track. Like I'm sure that happens too, man. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I had a, an experience early in my career. I think it was middle of the year in 2013. I did this race in Ohio called the burning river hundred mile. And there was this spot where I want to say it was maybe 70-ish miles into the race where there was a trail that went up this hill and there's an aid station up there where you would check in and you'd go down and you'd enter the next part of the course. But there was another trail that kind of went around that little hill. And uh, I went around on accident and then I saw the marking to get me back on the right spot. So I didn't think I was off course because in my mind, I had been seeing flags the whole time. And they didn't figure out that that was an issue until I think around mile 87 at the aid station. They're like, we didn't have any documentation of you checking into that aid station back at mile 76. So I sat there for a couple of minutes trying to figure out. And ultimately I was like, okay, I'm wasting time here. You guys figure out what happened. I'm going to go to the next aid station and let me know what the deal is. And I got to mile 93. I think I was in second place at the time or something like that. And they told me like, you missed the aid station. We're not exactly sure where you went, but you went somewhere and then got back on course. So your option is to backtrack all the way to 76 and then get back, correct the mistake essentially, and then continue on or, uh, you know, not finish. So my choice was to either like essentially redefine what my goals were the day and run like 135 ish some miles just for the sake of finishing that event or, you know, accept the mistake and move on. And ultimately I accepted the mistake and moved on. I mean, it's just one of those things where, you know, it's like you said, like if I would have been running that section of trail on fresh legs, fresh mind, I probably see that marker and don't think anything of it. But it's really hard to mark a course and be thinking, well, how would I see this when I've got 75 miles worth of running in my legs and mind? <laughs> so yeah. it's, you know, you hear those stories all the time and it's just a reality of the support to, of the sport to some degree. What are the coolest things about Uzak and a lot of people acknowledge the fact that you're doing this in a relatively ketogenically adapted nutrition regimen. That's so obscure. And I'd love for you to just walk us down like what it looks like for you to eat on a day-to-day -day basis. Are you normally ketogenically adapted? Like are you right now? And are you just doing kind of the targeted keto approach, you know, eating some carbs during your events or tell me what it looks like? Yeah, you know, this is a great topic and I think it gets really confusing for people because they think endurance athlete. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying before when I was talking about like ultra marathon, having this wide range of different events within that same umbrella. If you expand that umbrella even further and just include all endurance events, now we're talking about things from basically 1500 meters up to, I guess, the longest race you can find. You know, that's all technically endurance sports. So even though each one of those events is going to be 
the intensity of your race pace is going to range from purely aerobic to like right up to your VO2 max for the entirety of it. It's different. So you have to kind of parcel out like, well, what is Zach doing in context of ultra marathon? Does that translate to say the 10K or not? And does that translate for every person or is it a very individual battle? So I usually like to share that first just so people don't necessarily get confused. As to what I'm so saying. you're really getting into like the energetics of it, right? You're like, here's what my heart rate is relative to my VO2. So this is what my body's likely burning through. So that's what I'm going to replace. Exactly. And you know, the reality of an ultra marathon when we're talking about running for an entire day is you're going to be spending the majority, if not all that time at a, like a 65, maybe 75% of your VO2 max. And you can get even deeper to the bedrock if you want to keep digging and look at a course and say, well, this course is going to be more conducive to surging and slowing, surging and slowing, like you'd maybe see at like a Tour de France type event versus a race where it's perfectly flat, where you can dial up an exact effort and just kind of sit there all day long. So I think that plays a role as well. But for me, I guess to go back to the original question, like how do I structure in my diet? I look at it holistically in the sense that there's going to be different phases throughout the year. The other kind of confusing thing I think for people with my lifestyle in general is if you just picked a random day out of the calendar. You might pick a day where I'm barely moving at all because I'm recovering from a big effort or a a big race. Or you could pick a day where I'm actually running 100 miles or maybe doing like my key workout and doing like a three, four, five hour training session. So those days are going to look fairly different. So I do what I guess I would call kind of a periodized carbohydrate nutritional plan where I kind of set the foundation in the early stages where I'm not working out as hard So the volume and intensity is quite a bit lower compared to peak training. And those are the days where I'm going to be more strict about being kind of closer to that kind of clinical ketogenic 30 to 50 gram type of a setup. As I kind of progress and get my volume up to near peak and start adding some intensity, like with some threshold workouts, which I define as kind of an intensity of what you can handle all out for about 60 minutes and then even higher into like VO2 max workouts, which I usually use as like basically an all out three minute run with a three minute recovery jog followed by another three minute all out. And then depending where I'm at a training will depend on how many of those repetitions I would do. Those phases of training are ones where I'm going more glycolytic. And if they're paired with times where I'm not having really big like recovery period between, like I might be doing two a days, maybe I'm doing strength and mobility in the afternoon and doing a big run in the morning, but then that next morning I'm going to do another big run. Maybe I'm doing a big run in the morning and then another run in the afternoon. My recovery window is like super tight. So that's when I'll start to bring back some of the carbohydrates uh, as a way to kind of restore glycogen in a more concentrated amount of time. And I've just felt like that is where I find my workouts to be optimal. When I put that foundation in place in the early stages, I don't need to bring back as much carbohydrates as I had in the past when I was following a high carbohydrate diet. So I can minimize the amount I bring back and kind of use it more strategically than I would have in the past. And for me, that works really well. And, you know, I put a lot more faith in the field test side of things than I do any type of like lab values and stuff like that, just because ultimately at the end of the day, I'm trying to do this for performance. So I want to know what's happening in the environment in which I'm going to compete in. So that means looking at my workouts, like are my workouts getting better? Are they staying the same? And are they suffering? That's always an interesting thing too, when I'll talk to people about it and they'll say like, well, this study says this, or this study says that, or more often than not, I'm watching a couple of people on Twitter or something like that going back and forth. And, you know, in my mind, it's like, well, you know, just look at your results and find out for yourself what's working and what's not working rather than what did or didn't work for somebody else. Um, and I think that's ultimately the spot to get to as an individual 
is being honest with yourself and being willing to adjust in a way that you know makes sense for your own performance, your own goals. Because you know not everyone's goal is run as fast as they can for 100 miles. Some people's goals might be, I want to enjoy running. I want to enjoy going to the gym and lifting. I want to get stronger. I want to be healthy. And I want you know the rest of my life to be optimized just as much. So for them, it might be looks different as well. So I'm always interested in kind of the individual lifestyle component of it, just as much as I am like, what exactly is this person eating? Sure. I mean, that's the most logical approach I've ever heard, right? The most scientific approach, right? When you're not pushing that hard, your body's going to be running on fat. When you're hammering, you need more carbohydrate. And I think every athlete probably should consider that type of approach, right? I mm-hmm. mean, especially any endurance athlete wouldn't consider that type of approach to optimize performance. It just makes sense from an energy perspective. I'm curious as to what your weekly regimen would look like, just say right now. I know it's obviously going to fluctuate throughout the year, but as far as training blocks, so like how often are you pushing – you know, max effort versus max distance to really get your body to adapt? Or are you looking at very particular metrics? Like, hey, this is where I want to be as far as my times for my certain distances? Or how do you kind of measure where your work block should be? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, my kind of general philosophy with any endurance event is, you know, the race intensity specificity is kind of the guiding compass. So I always work backwards. So if I decide I want to run a hundred mile race, on a track, then I'm going to look at the intensity required for my goal time for that and kind of work backwards there. And I'm always trying to specify my training so that the most specific stuff to the race I'm training for is closest to the race itself. So that's where it gets kind of interesting because like someone running, say a 3k or a 5k, their race intensity is a system or two different than my race intensity for hundred miles. So for someone doing like say the 3k, 5k, They might be doing a lot of like short interval sessions, a lot of kind of cruise intervals at their threshold pace. That might be their key workouts. Whereas for me, as I get closer to race day, my key sessions are going to maybe be like back-to-back three-hour sessions at race pace, goal race pace, which is going to be lower intensity, but significantly higher in volume. So for me right now, I'm actually training for a couple of longer, relatively more flat runnable courses. So I'm getting close enough to those where I'm starting to specify to the race specific pacing itself. So I'm doing a lot of volume and my intensity is a lot of like high end aerobic stuff at the moment. I'll touch into maybe some threshold stuff from time to time. I'm not doing a whole lot of any VO2 max type stuff. I'm doing recovery runs that are like slower than race pace when my body is like asking for recovery more or less. But um, to put some tangible like numbers on that, what that kind of looks like is the block I'm in right now is basically a five week block and I'm just entering week four right now or in the middle of week four right now. And the first week was 130 miles. Most of that at high end aerobic. The second week was 150 miles. Most of it at high end aerobic. Then I did what I call a deload week where I just scale back on volume and intensity, just let my body reset before continuing to build. So last week was, I think, maybe 75 miles, all basically at easy recovery run. I probably wasn't hardly even touching high end aerobic during that week. And then this week, I'm going to be, I'll hit probably between 150 to 160 miles with that mindset of trying to get as much of that volume at that high end aerobic intensity. End the week with a couple of really, really race specific type workouts where I'll do maybe three to four hours on Saturday on a track and then do the same thing again on Sunday and really try to mimic that race atmosphere as much as possible. And then I'll have that last kind of week to the build before I start to taper back off for the race itself and let everything kind of catch up. And that week will look pretty similar to this one where I'll probably hit right around 160 miles or so. When you switched over to a ketogenic approach, did you actually notice a bump in your VO2, like in your ability to push up that high-end aerobic work? Because you're talking about spending a lot of time there at that max aerobic capacity. 
Do you notice a difference when you're ketogenically adapted versus conventional diet? Yeah, what I notice is once I kind of gave myself enough time to let my, I guess, what you could maybe say your metabolic switch to flip, I noticed like everything up to kind of high end aerobic stayed pretty similar in terms of like what my paces were at at a certain intensity. If I would start to do a lot of volume at that, I would maybe notice that my heart rate was a little higher at that high end at that kind of high end aerobic pace than it would have been when I had a little more carbohydrate available. But like I look at it as a minimum dosage for maximum return. So when I would see that happening, so if I would like say I'd be running strict keto 30 to 50 grams and then I would get to a week of training where I was hitting like maybe say 120 miles or something like that in the week, you know, I might notice some of those high end aerobic workouts. My heart rate is 10 beats per minute higher when I would reintroduce a very modest amount of carbohydrates, I'd bump my intake up to maybe you know, 10, 20%, you know, I would notice that that heart rate would come right back down. And adding more didn't necessarily like continue to improve that. So to me, like at least in my own experience meant that there was kind of a margin diminishing returns within a fat adapted athlete. So like I try to look at it the same way as I would maybe something like caffeine, where if I have a ritual of drinking a single cup of coffee every morning, no more, no less. And then one afternoon, try to squeeze an extra workout and then have an extra cup of coffee. I'm probably going to get a nice little pop from that extra cup of coffee. But if I'm drinking five cups of coffee on a regular basis, and then try to do that same thing and add a single cup of coffee for that afternoon workout, I probably won't notice anything. So like, really, it's like, I'm putting myself in a position to be very sensitive to the carbohydrates I do use. So then when I use it, it's a very noticeable effect. So that's more or less where I came up with those kind of cyclical uh, periodized carb approaches was I kept my eye on the prize, so to speak, which for me was performance. And when I saw things that didn't look quite right performance-wise, I made adjustments until they were you know, improving or back to where I wanted them to be. And for me, that just happened to be like a high fat, low carb diet with a little bit of a range in what I take in carbohydrate wise throughout the course of my training plan. Give me an idea of how many carbohydrates. So someone who's burning, Lord knows how many calories you're burning on those long runs, right? Like Mm -hmm. what percentage of what you put back in is going to be carbohydrate? Mm -hmm. And uh, what are your favorite sources of, of carbs and fat that you're consuming during the events? Yeah, that's a great question. And I I think I finally figured out the best way to answer it (laughs) because it gets a little more complicated, I think, because originally I would tell people with like percentages, but I eventually realized that got a little confusing for people too, just because my energy expenditure can be very drastic. And I tend to look at kind of fueling in a two to three day window versus say a single day window. I think of most Brilliant. people, they're looking at, well, I need X amount of calories per day. So every 24 hours that resets, and then I go back and do the same thing over again. And that probably works great for a lot of people who have a very consistent like energy output. They're like rarely like skewing higher or lower than what they would normally do. They've got their routine and it works for them and they stick to it. But for me, it's like the reality of my sport is you're going to have big training days that need big recovery days, which means massive variance in calorie expenditure. So... For me, the way I describe it is my carbohydrate intake usually ranges from anywhere from 0%. If I'm like finished with my key race, I'm just recovering and I'm kind of restarting the whole process of building up for my next event all the way up to maybe 20 to a few times a year, maybe 30% of my intake coming from carbohydrate. Now, where that kind of gets a little confusing for people, I think, is when I'm at my highest carbohydrate intake on a percentage basis, like that 20 to 30% intake, those are going to be the days where I'm 
probably running or working out upwards to like say four or five hours. So in the context of a day like that, my energy expenditure is going to be two, maybe three times what my resting metabolic rate would be. So on top of the fact that I'm spending like the first half of the day essentially running, so I'm eating my first significant meal midway through the day, it's very difficult for me to match that energy expenditure that day. Like I would have to try to like actively force down five, 6,000 calories, which I could do, but I just don't find that that's very enjoyable and very like intuitive, I guess is maybe the way to say it. So oftentimes what I do is when I have a training session like that, I know I'm going to have a day or two that's very, very scaled back, if not complete rest. So that gives me a very good opportunity to kind of make up that calorie deficit on that second and third day instead of trying to make it all up in that one afternoon after I get done with that session. So I might take in 30% of my intake on that day where I ran five hours, but it's going to be 30% of a portion of what I actually metabolized. So when you look at like the energy I actually used, we're looking at maybe a thousand plus calories that came off of body fat that wasn't accounted for in that 30% number. When you look at those next two days where I'm doing very little activity, those are typically days where I'm going to be dropping down to maybe like, you know, zero to 5% carbohydrate. So I'm replacing some of that energy expenditure from that big workout with a lot of fats and proteins and eating in a surplus on day two and three in order to come out of that three-day window in an even energy expenditure, energy intake, assuming I'm at the weight I want to be at, which is at this point in the season, I'm almost always there. So at that point, I'm just trying to over a two, three-day window of time, making sure I'm getting in what I'm putting out. Right. How many calories you eat in a day and what is your current body weight? I'm right around about 140 pounds, give or take. And uh, I would say this time of year when I'm putting in these big blocks, I'm, I'm probably north of 4,000. I admittedly don't track like calorie to calorie real specifically at this point because I've essentially been doing kind of the nutritional approach that I found works for almost eight years. So I've just gotten really yeah. good at kind of knowing. So like the other thing I really like about really fine tuning your nutrition approach is I do think you give your body the opportunity to kind of tell you what it needs. So I can usually predict kind of how hungry I'm going to be, if that makes sense. And know like, well, I'm probably going to eat. Like if you told me you're going to be gone for two days, you better pack everything you need. I could probably guess it pretty accurately, but ultimately I'm just kind of responding to what my body tells me. Like I don't necessarily get into a situation where I decided I'm going to eat say two big meals and one snack this day. And then if I'm more hungry, don't eat because I wanted to stick to that specific plan or, you know, on the opposite side of it, plan to have two big meals and a snack or something like that. And then find that I'm not hungry during the snack time and just eat the snack for the sake of eating it. So I found that like doing it more intuitively like that has been, maybe it's just like a little bit of an ease from the psyche. So I don't feel like I'm always thinking or stressing out about it. It just seems a little more approachable. And I've been doing it long enough where I just have a really good idea of kind of what that actually entails. And I will track from time to time just to kind of fact check myself, I guess, to make sure I'm not like giving people erroneous information. <laughs> but, you know, it gets easy. I'm sure you probably can relate to like you find foods that you really gravitate to, ones that really work for you. And you really just don't want to really deviate too far from that. Like, you know, there may be a few times every once in a while where you're out with friends and you're going to just you know, throw caution to wind, so to speak. But for the most part, I think a lot of people that are really focused on a goal, they gravitate to the things that they like and the things that works for them. And then once you find that, you have a good idea of what you're taking in. So for me, that's like a- What are your primary sources of calories right now? Yeah. So I really like to build a foundation on like fatty sources of meat, mostly like ruminant meat. So like I'll do a lot of like uh, beef 
and I'll get like a, like a bison tallow or a beef tallow if I want to add a little extra calories to it. I'll do a lot of eggs. I'll do some dairy, mostly like kind of cheeses or like full fat dairy yogurt or milk or something like that. I don't do a ton of that, but a couple servings a day, especially when I'm kind of getting into higher levels of training. I'll do some like extra virgin olive oil type stuff from time to time too. But I, I usually try to skew more closer to animal fats when I'm getting kind of those liquid fat calories. And uh, you find cool little ways to add that stuff in too. Like I'm a huge fan of slow cooking because it's just so easy. I'll get like a three, four pound roast, throw it in the slow cooker for a half a day to a full day. And then, you know, you get a nice layer of fat on the top of that that you can kind of reuse to cook eggs and stuff in. So a lot of my stuff will be revolved around that. And then when I start adding back, some of the carbohydrates, you know, for me, I really love adding back like sweet potatoes, normal potatoes, berries, melons, raw honey. Those are just the type of carbs that I, I prefer. I usually when I'm working with someone that's doing that similar approach, we usually look at, well, what are some of the carb sources that you used to eat that you really liked? And let's see if we can use those within reason. There's no reason not to kind of use what I think works for you or what you prefer. So like my wife is different than me. She doesn't really like potatoes. She doesn't really like melon that much. So like she really likes sourdough bread. So when she's adding carbohydrates in for performance, you know, she'll usually do sourdough bread or something like that. So I think you can use someone's individual personality quirks to your advantage with that stuff too. What's the next big goal for you, man? I mean, being the, you know, the fastest 100 mile marathoner in American history, if I'm not mistaken, what's next, man? Do you have something that's bigger and uh, better for you right now or what? <laughs> So, yeah, my 100-mile time is 11 hours and 40 minutes and 55 seconds, So, and that's the American record at the moment. Right now, the world record is 11 hours, 28 minutes, and 3 seconds, so that's kind of been a bit of a target I've had the last couple of years. That's on track, right? That's the outright record. They don't really differentiate too much anymore. Like, you can get, like, records that are track-specific, road-specific, or trail-specific, but there's also kind of, like, outright records where it's just the fastest time on any surface. So that 112803 is just like the fastest documented 100 mile time. But was it done on a track, do you know? Uh, yes, it was. It was on, an, I, think, yeah. I believe it was an indoor track in the UK in like 2003. That's kind of like a part goal. You know, I've also kind of got this goal to like more or less motivate other ultra runners to go after fast 100 mile times. Because one of the interesting things with North American ultra running is the most recent kind of uptick with it has been skewed more towards the trails where if you look back to like the seventies and eighties, most of the, you know, top level ultra marathons marathoners in the United States were targeting more flatter, faster type courses that looked a little more similar to like a marathon course, just longer in distance. So I really love that aspect of this sport. And I'd love to see folks who are like way more talented than me go in there and just like really show what humans are capable of for 100 miles when every variable is accounted for. But until then, I'm going to keep chipping away at that. And I'm actually doing an event in August that's in the Olympic Training Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's called the Pettit Center. And they've got, I believe it's a 443-meter track that goes around a speed skating rink and uh, I think three hockey rinks. So they keep it at like 55 degrees, no direct sun because you're indoors. Yeah, I was a little bit skeptical as to whether I'd have enough time to kind of turn things around and get ready for that event because I did a 100 miler on the trails which is like a a lot different environment to train on earlier this year but I bounced back really quick and I've had some really good training last few weeks so I think if I feel good on race day I'm not going to hold back and see if I can take a swing at that uh, 100 mile world record there and then uh for you man yeah yes that's fun no I should say it's fun for like 70 to 80 miles of it the last 20 kind of stuff (laughs) there's just no way around it but uh then there's a race over in Greece called the Spartathlon. It's one of the oldest ultra marathons. 
was a 153 mile race over rolling roads from uh, Athens to Sparta that my wife and I are heading over to do in September as well. Hell yeah, man. Hell yeah. That's so 153 miles straight. Like how long is it going to take you? The course record there is 20 hours and 25 minutes. The guy who broke that course record is fairly unarguably the best timed event ultra marathoner ever. He, uh, he was that? Giannis Kuros is his name and he holds the world record for 24 hours. He ran 188.8 miles, I believe in 24 hours which comes out to about a 7.30 pace for 24 hours straight. So talk to me about that, man. Like how much is he stopping? Is he talk, stopping to like take a nap or like eat a lunch or is he just like stopping for five minutes to break and eat and go? Yeah, for a 24-hour effort, he's probably stopping like hardly at all, like only when he needs to. Like say if he has to go to the bathroom really bad, he'll stop maybe to do that. But other than that, he's trying to stay moving the whole time. And, and you almost have to when you're talking about a pace like 7.30 per mile. Like, you know, if you stop for two minutes, that just means you've got to run 10 seconds per mile faster for, you know, the next 12 miles, which is going to, you better really need that break <laughs> in order to do yeah. that. And it kind of put that in perspective. Like when I broke the American record for a hundred miles, I stopped twice for a total of somewhere between 60 to 90 seconds total. And uh, it was just used to the bathroom two times. So like in terms of fueling and getting like your nutrition taken care of, you're essentially having someone on the side of the track, handing you a bottle, handing you whatever you're using, and you're doing it while you're moving. And then you're throwing whatever bottle or waste you had from that off to the side to them to pick up and throw away. You know, you're just trying to stay, stay moving. That's the interesting thing about some of these short loop timed events is you're super exposed. Like, you know, exactly when and where you slow down and it's for no other reason than you slow down. When you get on some of these trail events that are real hilly, like you get up a steep climb, it's just natural that your pace is going to be slower. So you can kind of talk yourself into like, Oh, that was slower because of the terrain or, since I have to take care of myself at aid stations, I need to stop for 30 to 40 seconds in order to make it sustainable. Whereas when you're on a track like that and someone is babying you the entire day, like you really have no reason to slow down unless it's you physically needing to slow down. So it's, it can be kind of a slap in the face too. From that standpoint, you really know when you're suffering versus when you're excelling. Tell me about some of these different training considerations when you, when you shift from a, you know, effectively a 12 hour, hundred miles to a 20 hour, you know, 180 mile, whatever you mentioned it was there. Like, cause now you got to start considering like, okay, at 12 hours, yes, fatigue is a big concern, but at 18 to 20 hours, like your body's not used to being awake for 24 hours, let alone running for 24 hours. Right. Like what, what does that start to look like as far as training for that? Yeah. So one of the reasons why this Spartathlon this September is going to be kind of an exciting adventure for me is just the reality for me that I haven't ran past 17 and a half hours and I haven't ran past 125 miles. So I'm almost certainly going to be running longer than I ever have and further than I ever have before. So with that comes a little bit of uncertainty. So for me, what that kind of means is just like getting myself in a mental position to know that I'm going to try to do something I've never done before, which is, um, I actually kind of look forward to it to a degree because at this point I've run I think between 50 to 60 ultra marathons from like the 50k to 125 mile distance. So there's not a whole lot of like uncertainty in that I've never experienced that before within an event that would be in that parameter versus the one I'm going to do in Greece, which is kind of cool because it's like you go into that knowing like I'm going to try to do something I've never done before, which adds a, a really cool dynamic to it, I think, but also adds uncertainty that I'll have to try to manage. So it's almost certain that something will come up that I haven't experienced before that I'll have to try to respond to. But I think that fits within the parameters of how I've prepared in the past too, where 
when you're out there for that long, it's not a matter of can I make everything perfect? It's a matter of when is something going to go wrong or different than I expected and how well am I going to respond to it? So my mindset going in is like when something like that happens where a hurdle presents itself that I wasn't really expecting, how do I get past that? And then how do I move on from it and not fixate on it? Like the last thing I want is to be at, you know, 135 miles and still be like regretting something that happened at 110 miles because that's just something I can't really do anything about at that point. So it'll be a huge kind of point of focus. The other thing too is looks the relative intensity of a race that's 153 miles. I mean, the course record for that is an eight minute mile pace. So for me, eight minute mile pace is super chill on any given day, um, which opens up the opportunity to be a little more strategic, I think, from the ketogenic standpoint. Like I can probably rely on not necessarily having to tap into carbohydrate as fuel sources from a physiological standpoint. You can make a pretty good argument, I think, from a central nervous standpoint, if like taking in a little bit of carbohydrate at a you know, mile 100 gives you like that energy from a central nervous system standpoint where it just sharpens your senses a bit. You know, there's probably some value there, but maybe I can do that with fats too. So, you know, historically my events have been short enough where I look at fat fuel as something I can rely on off my body. Even the leanest endurance athletes in the world could go through a, a typical ultra marathon on body fat and not run out that fuel tank is relatively unexhaustible they'd probably want to replace a lot of that if they're really lean afterwards but the one that you're really going to potentially exhaust is your muscle glycogen so to date i've been more focused on kind of keeping that tank where it needs to be which just means using carbohydrates strategically during an event and then relying on body fat for that and really more or less that's just trying to kind of hack digestion i'm trying to avoid digestion if i can because that's just an extra task for my body to try to do. So if I can scale that back, I'm going to do it as long as it doesn't impact performance negatively. But when we're getting into these events that are that long, you know, when you're getting up to 20, 24 hours in duration, I think there's a little more flexibility at how you kind of structure that. So sure. What are the typical things that are going to go wrong, man? Like, so, you know, are your feet really well adapted by this point to running hundred miles? Cause I'm guessing like, that's a big concern getting blisters and such, or, or what are the things that would typically go wrong? If you say like mile 110, something went wrong, what would that be? Yeah. You know, feet are a big one. I mean, that's your point of impact. So when you're out there all day, you know, you see all sorts of things. I've seen people with blisters so big that it covers their entire heel and you can literally peel it away. And there's just like raw red skin underneath, which I mean, I don't know how you run on that. I think they have never had a blister quite that bad, but you know, you get like blood blisters under toenails and things like that. So I do think like foot care and kind of trying to be proactive with that side of things is very beneficial as you get into these longer stuff. For me, I've put a lot of time and energy into kind of foot and lower leg strength. I think sometimes people forget that essentially from the day you started wearing a shoe, you've essentially put a cast on your foot. So you're protecting your muscles to some degree, regardless of whether you have on like a minimalist shoe or a maximalist shoe. And, you know, most people are going to be in somewhere in between those two things. But, you know, you're putting that cast on your foot and you're weakening those foot muscles to a degree with that. So I do spend a decent amount of time kind of focusing on wearing low profile, more minimalist type shoes to really strengthen my lower legs since I'm going to need those to be very strong. I don't always race in a minimalist shoe, but, you know, I'm going to prepare my foot feet as if I were so that they're stronger for that. And that's where you kind of get into that same environment that you are with muscle strength and stuff. 
where like I'm looking at that part of my body as also those are muscles down there too. Those are tendons and ligaments that need to be stressed to the point where they can handle the load you're going to put on them on race day. And, you know, putting myself in the best position possible to avoid as much carnage in that department is always kind of on my mind. But yeah, I've been pretty fortunate. I don't, I've never really had a foot issue that was so bad that I had to pull out of a race from like a blister standpoint or a toenail, but it is something that can derail you. So having like kind of a backup pair of shoes or a change of socks, athletic tape. So if you do get a blister, you can kind of remedy it and patch it up and get going if you need to. Those are kind of some of the more typical problems that people face. Sure, Zach. This podcast is often framed around uh, helping people live their greatest life. And the podcast is really centered around helping high achievers achieve a greater uh, level of uh, anything in their life, whatever we're pursuing. What are some of your daily non-negotiables? Some of the things that like, you know, it's a morning routine or is it like this morning run that has to happen? Or what are some of the things that you do on a day-to-day basis that are just part of you becoming such a world-class achiever? You know, I'm always trying to think about like, what do I need to do today that is going to add essentially a block to the foundation of what I'm trying to get to. So there's always that long-term goal there. And then each day kind of plays a piece of that puzzle. It gets interesting because like, I try not to be so dogmatic about any specific workout where it has to be a complete non-negotiable. Like if my body says no, then I, I kind of need to listen to it to a degree or I end up digging myself into a hole. But the non-negotiable, I guess, is consistency. You know, consistency in the sense that I'm going to try to take a step forward from where I'm at that day. So if I wake up in the morning and I feel great and the workout on the schedule is going to happen, like that workout is a non-negotiable. I'm going to get it done. I'm going to do it right. If I wake up in the morning and I go out and I'm about to do a workout that's on the schedule and my body's just not ready for it, I'll bail on that and I'll do the non-negotiable then becomes what do I have to do to get myself in a position to be able to do this workout on a future date? If that means, you know, doing some more mobility type stuff and stretching, you know, getting a massage or relaxing a bit more that day or just going for a walk, you know, that's what I'm going to do. So some of that stuff is that consistency in the routine or always kind of looking at how do I get myself to a position where I can maximize this training plan long-term versus just any one specific workout. You mentioned your wife being an ultra marathoner as well. How do you guys integrate the dynamic there? Because obviously, you know, you're doing things differently. Do you try to get a lot of races in or, or runs in together? Or is it just a completely separate thing where you end up having, you know, quality time at the end of the day and not training together? Yeah, no, it, it is really interesting. You know, my wife is a highly competitive ultra marathoner as well. And, and her name is Nicole. She does a lot of similar races that I do. And usually like, we can find ways to run together often enough. Like there's days where the primary goal is active recovery where like, you know, I might be just out there trying to to run and the pace isn't very important. It's just getting some active recovery in and she might be doing an easy run that day too, in which case we'll try to, you know, link up and do a run together and, and talk about everything and anything we think of. And then if we want to get real strategic, usually like when she starts getting pretty fit and I start getting pretty fit, I'm always maybe like maybe one system ahead of her. So like if she's going out to do a threshold run, that's kind of my high end aerobic pace. So I try to match our schedules a bit so that her threshold run days are on the same days as my high end aerobic days. And then I can kind of pace her. We actually did that this morning. She had a like a 90 minute run with 30 minutes at threshold. And I had a high end aerobic day. So we did our warm up together and then we did her threshold run together and then she cooled down and went back home and I finished my my kind of high end aerobic focused run afterwards. Very cool. Yeah. 
Do you guys feel like you have to motivate each other out there or is it more or less like, hey, just maintain your pace? Like, is it getting after each other? Like, hey, you need to go harder or is it oftentimes like putting the reins on and like, hey, you should chill out a little bit and make sure you maintain the necessary pace? You know, for my wife, she's like a super hardworking person. And if anything, she is probably hard on herself about stuff. But like if I told her to do something, she's going to do it. <laughs> she's going to get it done. She'll find a way. So I'm more like... I have to pay closer attention to not like letting getting her into a situation where she does too much because she'll do as much as she thinks is necessary or I tell her is necessary. So, you know, that's, I think, the more interesting thing when you get a situation like that where where you almost have to say, like, it's okay to take a step back and go easy today versus trying to charge hard all the time. And her dynamic is so interesting because, you know, her job, she's a lawyer and she works for a, a company that deals with like kind of corporate uh, insurance and stuff. So she's very like detail orientated, schedule orientated. I need to be here. I need to do this for her working life. So for her running life, it's like almost like a reprieve from that. So she wants very little structure in her mind. So she doesn't even wear a watch. So it's actually kind of funny. I'm the exact opposite with the training stuff. I love the data. I love tracking stuff. I want to know what my mile split was here. I want to know what my heart rate was at that intensity. So like at the end of the day, I think you need to listen to your body and you can get very in tune to like your rate of perceived exertion. And she's very in tune to that. Like if I tell her to go out and do like a threshold run, she can pretty much predict what that feels like and just execute it, even if I'm not there. So it's just kind of a couple different approaches with that. I guess, you know, I'm pretty highly motivated too. So I just have to be honest with myself at the end of the day, like, are you ready for this workout? Or are you not? Is a recovery run more important today? Or is this a good day to kind of hit a high level of training. And I think you get really, really comfortable kind of knowing where those are when you've put your body through these processes for as long as I have. And sure, yeah, I think you're doing all right, man. I think you're pretty motivated. <laughs> I think you really get a pass today. What type of things are you using for uh, tracking, man? What are your, you know, using a Garmin or what are your primary mechanisms? Yeah, a couple of things. Like when I'm out there actually doing the activity itself, I use a GPS watch. Right now I've been using, this is a company that relatively new called Koros. And they make an activity tracker that, you know, tells you everything and everything you'd want to know from like your elevation gain and loss, your pace per mile, your pace at any given moment while you're out there, your heart rate, all that stuff. So I'll use that as like my infield guide. You know, then I'll get back and I'll upload that onto the computer and I'll use a program called Strava that tracks kind of like where your route was, where all the pace was. Yeah, man. I started following on Strava and checking out all your all your data. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool that you can do that, right? You can be like, hey, Zach did 100 miles today. That, that's awesome. It's an endless thing. You can just keep diving in. And, and actually, that kind of goes back to maybe some of the stuff you were asking about before. Like, how do you hold yourself accountable for workouts versus going too hard when you should be recovering? And, and Strava can be a double-edged sword with that. You know, it gives you all the data you want and you can really fine-tune things. But they also have this really interesting thing where, like, People will build like segments where there's this mile and a half segment and it lists how fast everyone has done it. And you can get carried away and decide like, oh, it's an, I should be running an easy run today, but I'm going to go over this segment that I could get the course record for. And so you do have to use those strategically. I sometimes like to, if I want a little bit of extra motivation and I'm supposed to be doing a speed work, sometimes maybe I'll pick a couple segments that are nearby in the route I'm doing and I'll say, okay, those are going to be where I target the intensity sessions. You know, but on an easy run day, you kind of have to let that stuff slide and not get too hung up on it too. Yeah. What does your HRV look like, man? Are you checking that on a regular basis? And how much does that swing? You know, I haven't dove as deep into that as I probably could. I've been tracking more just like, you know, what is my heart rate doing while I'm sleeping and am I getting enough deep sleep? 
and that sort of thing. You're checking that with also a watch or with yeah, what? that same watch I use to train also does some of that sleep metric stuff. So if I have the heart rate sensor turned on. I'm wearing the watch at night. It'll track kind of my light sleep, deep sleep, waking hours and stuff like that. And, and what I found is, uh, you know, usually when I can get right around two hours of deep sleep, that's when I kind of feel like I'm the most well rested. If I have like a few days in a row where like for whatever reason, I'm, I'm not getting quite enough deep sleep. That's when I start to feel like I'm a little less motivated to kind of do some of the more threshold or VO2 max stuff or even some of those really long high end aerobic type days. So I do pay attention to that. Or I'll also look at just heart rate in general. Like if I go out for a run and I should be at a specific pace at a certain intensity or a certain heart rate and I notice that the heart rate is higher at that intensity or that perceived effort, I should say, then I kind of take that as a, as a sign that maybe I'm not quite ready to push hard on that specific day. That's awesome, man. So much wisdom in that. And so a lot of my audience isn't in the endurance or ultra endurance space. And if they want to get started into, you know, doing some endurance work, and I know you do coaching, what are some kind of first steps you suggest people doing, you know, someone maybe who's been a competitive physique athlete or someone who's maybe, you know, in relatively good shape, and they want to transition into doing some of this more endurance centric stuff? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I'm a big fan of micro stressing. I like to say like, you want to do enough that you elicit a stress response so you get stronger, but not so much that you have to invest extra days to recover that you wouldn't have otherwise. So what that means with endurance, I think, is oftentimes just building a really good aerobic foundation. And you know, when I'm working with someone with that, I really like kind of the foundation to be built around these principles of a program that's called like MAF or maximum aerobic function, where you kind of you take your max heart rate. And you can get a little more specific for the individual, but it's more or less your max heart rate minus your age is kind of like your ideal high end aerobic training area. So getting like really fit within that system before trying to like target any specific event or intensity outside of that. So a lot of times what I see with that is we'll get that number figured out. So let's say for some person that had things to be 150 beats per minute, we're going to work within a range there. I'm not going to tell someone you got to be at exactly 150 beats per minute every step of this run. Like if someone's number is 150, we'll say, like, let's try to keep it like 146 to 154, somewhere in there. And we'll just start building volume in that. And what I'll be looking for is for their pace to drop within that specific heart rate range. So if I see someone, say, go from a nine-minute mile at 150 beats per minute down to an eight-minute mile at 150 and then down to seven, we're heading in the right direction. And they're establishing that strong aerobic base. Once you have that in place, once that kind of starts to plateau, you're kind of in a great position to target any endurance event, whether that be like a 5K or a 100 miler. And then you can just specify to that specific distance. But that's definitely step one. Man, that's awesome advice. Like that's the simplest thing I've heard, but yet absolutely applicable and, and very, very useful. And so if people want to reach out to you, tell them about your podcast, tell them about what you're doing now and how they can learn more about yourself and even reach out to you for coaching if they're interested. Yeah. So pretty much links to everything I dig into is on my website at zachbitter.com. It's Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. I'm probably most active on like Instagram and Twitter. Instagram is at Zach Bitter. Twitter is at ZBitter. I co-host a podcast called Human Performance Outliers with uh, Dr. Sean Baker. and Super cool podcast. Yeah, we've been, really, we've been really fortunate. I don't think we really had a specific direction when we started it about a year and a half ago. But, you know, we've kind of more or less been fortunate enough to get a lot of like kind of professors and doctors and nutrition and sports physiology and stuff on the show. And we'd like to kind of dive into a lot of things on there. So that's been a blast. I've learned a ton from that. You guys do one a week? We've been actually doing about three a week right now. We've been 
releasing on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And uh, I would say that's probably our max bandwidth at the moment. But uh, it's so far, Mm -hmm. we've both found time to do it. So we've just been kind of chugging along. Very cool, man. Zach, thank you so much for your time, man. I know you're a busy man. And get back to recovery and enjoy that beautiful life. Alrighty, will do. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Thanks, pal. Appreciate it. And that's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Zach Bitter. What an incredible human being. He inspired me to start moving more, to start walking more, running more, doing more with my life and setting my goals higher. You realize that if you're not setting high goals for yourself, it's going to be really, really challenging for you to truthfully thrive. So I hope each and every one of you has set a goal for yourself this week, this month, this year that really inspires you to stretch to become the greatest version of yourself. It's not just about getting through life. We need to have an abundance mentality. You have enough energy. You have enough time to get anything done, everything done in your life that you want to get done, provided you start to build the habits and skill sets. Now, because realize, guys, today is just one day in the rest of your life, and you can do a lot today. You have many, many days in your life. One of the favorite things that Zach said in this podcast was, you know, he admires bodybuilders for a parallel mindset to these endurance athletes because of that persistence mindset, that patience that's so necessary to truthfully thrive. And I love that, right? Because so many of us are in a hurry. You know, I want to achieve my goals now, right? I want it right now. I want the, the human instinct is I need immediate gratification. And if you really, really, really want to thrive, guys, it's not about today, right? Today is a step, a stepping stone in this journey. If you want to thrive, you have to thrive over time. So build a habit today, right? Don't stress yourself out. Don't get angry with yourself if something doesn't go correctly. Just get right back on track. Because remember, every single moment of your life, every single moment is an opportunity to either reinforce a bad habit or create a new one that sets you on path to this new person, this new personality, this new trait that you're trying to create. Every single moment from the way I speak to the way I stand to the way I eat to the way I breathe, guys, it's so important and allowing you to thrive as a human being. So I hope you guys have loved this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed every one of our podcasts. I hope you always listen through right to the end. One of the new things that I want to try to, I'll take that word back. One of the things that I'm going to do is be wrapping up these podcasts with a little bit more extensive wrap up, telling you a little bit more about life, giving you guys a little bit more information at the end of the podcast, because you know I've got a lot of people asking for more of me. So one, I'm extremely flattered, extremely grateful. Uh, and I have a lot to offer, guys. I really want to talk to you a lot about anything you want to hear about. So you've heard now we've started um, doing the Q&A questions with Ashley. Uh, I love doing those episodes. You guys fire your questions into me anytime. Fire them into her. We're working together in unison to really make this podcast the best thing it can be, right? We talk about being high achievers in life. Well, we want to be high achievers in podcasts. We want to have the number one podcast in iTunes, one of the top podcasts in the world. And that's really what this is about. And I know you guys drive this podcast success. So, so grateful for your time. So grateful for your ear. And I thank you guys for supporting myself, supporting this podcast and supporting our podcast sponsors. And you know, we've got a few of those as always. Um, Today's podcast is exclusively sponsored by Four Sigmatic, who's been a longtime supporter of this podcast. If you guys haven't tried their products, again, you know, I'll tell you once again, head over and do that now, foursigmatic.com. Uh, you can use the discount code MUSCLE. I believe forcigmatic.com slash MUSCLE is also a URL that's still in use. Uh, but if not, just the code MUSCLE at uh, checkout will give you a discount of 15%. And uh, man, I, I really hope you guys are thriving today, creating those awesome habits. And I want to hear from you. So if there's something that uh, you want me to talk about, 
Again, send a question. If there's something you want to tell us about the show, leave us a review on iTunes because your subscriptions and your reviews drive the continued success and growth of me, Ashley, and podcast. So guys, thank you so much for supporting Muscle Intelligence. Uh, Peace out. I love you guys all and have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.